0: So we're going to have Craig and Ruby on the podcast today, right, Nicole? Yeah, for sure. I was thinking last time with Tito, it didn't really go so well. I feel like we just asked him if he wanted to come live in a commune, and he just like laughed in our faces and was like, no way.
1: Yeah, I think it was a little too forward, you know, like not smooth enough to tell somebody to uproot their entire life and
0: go live communally with a bunch of people. So what you're saying is we should apply subterfuge?
1: Is that the same thing as like pizzazz or oomph? I, I would like to know a little bit more about what people's wants and needs are before I am I throw this, the you know, the big C word at them. Like, do you want to come and live on a commune?
0: Yeah, you know what? For all intents and purposes, I'm just going to say that subterfuge is the same thing as pizzazz and hope that you don't look in a dictionary and find out that I'm lying. Anyway... I think that that makes sense, and that maybe what we should do is start with like a couple of questions about how they're enjoying life in l a because I know they're not totally enjoying life in l a and might be persuaded if they did a little bit of thinking about the smog and the traffic and the Hollywood phonies, and maybe all of that stuff could like, oh hold on, here they come, here they come
2: Hey hey guys, how's it going? Great, You done testing levels and stuff.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Everything's very normal. No scheming happening at all. Extremely. Where do you guys want to go for lunch?
2: I mean, can we drive into the city? We got all the
1: classic Ottawa things, you know, like East Side Mario's or like that one Vietnamese restaurant where the family opened up a bunch of different shops. Q, you know
0: what I'm talking about? Yeah, Foboga two, Foboga three, Foboga la. There's Dirienzos,
1: There's Dirienzo's
0: too. No, Dirienzo's two closed down. There was a beef between different branches of the family, and there could only be one Italian shop.
2: I am just a little bit wary of Canada-specific restaurants. After we had that shrimp lo that was gray and didn't have any noodles <laughs> in
3: it, like a Steamboat Willie cartoon. <laughs>
1: Canada has some things going for it, but as far as we've been able to tell, a lot of the restaurants are pretty whatever.
0: I want to apologize again for those tacos. I really thought that that would be the place. They had the sign outside saying they don't make TikTok-style Mexican food. It seemed promising, but then... What do they, wait,
2: what do they mean, TikTok-style Mexican food? Like, they don't make, like, the quadrants where they, like, fold the tortilla over four times?
0: You
3: love those.
0: <laughs> I actually didn't know, and so I'm learning something today about what TikTok-style Mexican food is.
1: I think what they're hoping for is people read it, and they're like, ooh, they know what TikTok is. I'm gonna get tacos here.
3: Yeah, I feel like more than any drug that really tested my I'll-try-anything-once philosophy... <laughs> <laughs>
2: You mean like you'll you'll try any drug ones, but canada Mexican food is a rich. Not gender.
3: even not even <laughs> once. Yeah. We really should have known better.
2: Okay. Well, this seems like a reasonable demand.
0: There's this pub called The Burbs we could go to.
1: They will charge you twenty-five dollars for a burger and a drink. No joke.
2: I mean that's twenty-five dollars Canadian. That's like what, like
3: two
1: dollars US?
2: <laughs> well
3: what do, what are you in
1: the mood for, Ruby? Like let's figure this out.
3: And why is it Harvey's?
2: Craig is in the mood for Harvey's clearly um I don't know I just like I don't know I haven't had anything here that really uh fits my definition of food you know this actually
1: really lines up with another podcast I've been listening to recently where there's a woman who lives in LA and you have such a choice in LA and she's like a real cravings person and so she has such choices she'll just like drive to the other side of the city to like pick up the perfect Korean dish Or like the perfect churro.
2: Well, I will say that we don't have to drive to the other side of the city to pick up the perfect Korean dish because the perfect Korean dish is a couple miles southeast of us.
3: We live pretty close to Koreatown.
2: Yeah, we could go to Koreatown. Do you guys want to go to Koreatown?
0: What, like Koreatown in LA?
2: Yeah, I mean, we came all the way here to hang out with you guys. Like the least you can do is come out to LA to go to our favorite Korean restaurant.
0: Well, can we use Craig's private jet?
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's either that or we're going to fly
1: Frontier and we're going to show up like 63 hours late.
2: I don't know if I'm comfortable with going with the idea that Craig is a private jet.
0: (laughs) Okay, fine.
3: We'll fly coach.
2: We'll just put Craig in underneath like a a dog. A little cage.
3: It's the working class thing to do.
1: (laughs) No, the working class thing to do is to get on a train and do it like the Amish do.
0: The Amish aren't working class. They're like... (laughs) petty proprietor agricultural capitalists
1: okay wait 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 before we start beef with the amish on our podcast why don't we meet craig and ruby at their favorite korean restaurant
0: so what's this restaurant ruby
2: um okay so we are at Sung Sa, the best restaurant in los angeles it's a Korean restaurant. It's in Koreatown. It's on 6th, next to a gas station. They've got these, like, wood-paneled booths that all have, like, graffiti and writing written all over them, and you can get any variety of meat and various vegetable skewers for $1.99. It's cheap, except for the drinks, and it's it's great. I love it.
0: Didn't we come here and you said they ignore you if you don't order drinks, though?
2: That is true. Once we... At one point we came to Densung Sa, we didn't order drinks, and it took us an hour to get the check, because... As soon as you stop ordering drinks, they stop paying attention to you.
3: Yeah, it wasn't particularly busy either. To be fair, $15 for like a huge crock pot of lemon soju cocktail is not that mm. high a price to get served at restaurants. That's true.
1: Let's get that. That sounds amazing. And I'm also a firm believer in the worse the service at the restaurant, the better. Their service isn't like they won't be rude to you. They just will ignore you. Just ignore me. Yeah. Exactly.
3: Yeah, also literally everything else on the menu is like $3. Wow, oh, that's great. Do you guys want to order
0: for us? I feel like, I don't really know. Like,
1: I'm just going to get a bunch of these meat
0: on stick
3: options. I can order. I always order here. Yeah, Ruby orders and then I just add a few meat things. So I got you covered, Nicole.
0: Awesome. Here comes the waiter. Can you just like what
2: they're doing is they're bringing us various vegetables, chopped vegetables and some ranch dressing, um, which is not I don't know if that's traditional Korean uh, appetizer, but also some sort of soup that I'm never sure if it has meat in it or not. But I always eat it even though I'm vegetarian.
1: Hi there. I'll be your server today. Here are some appetizers to get you started. And if you're ready, I can go ahead and take your order now.
2: Okay, great. Let us get one pineapple skewer, one whole garlic skewer, one fresh tofu with topping, one kimchi pancake. Uh, do you guys all want tuna hand rolls? Yeah, hell yeah! All right, four tuna hand rolls. Oh, and two orders of dumbbells.
3: Yeah, you can't forget the dumbbells.
2: Dumbbells are great. They're like these glass noodles fried in the shape of like a weightlifting dumbbell, dipped in this really delicious spicy sauce. Um, and that's it, unless, Craig, you want to order various meats.
3: Yeah, we'll also get, what do you think to call two, maybe three pork belly skewers?
2: Yeah, I could definitely start with that.
1: And
3: also two of the back ribs. Ooh. I think mean, that'll get us started.
2: Oh, can we also get um, a mushroom skewer and a shumai skewer?
3: Is there bulgogi?
2: No, sorry. Is this is all family style. No one gets their own dish. Sorry, Hugh.
0: Ah, I hate that. Oh,
2: well.
0: <laughs> I remember this place being pretty good, so I'm going to bite the bullet.
2: I-, I forgot that Hugh hates that.
0: It's okay. It's not all about me. <laughs> so is that everything? Are we all set for order? Should we get some of that lemon soju? Oh,
2: yes. Um, Can we please also get a lemon soju cocktail? Sure can. So We just need to order one and then it comes in a big teapot. Will that be everything for now? Oh, and some water, please. They don't automatically bring you water. I'll get those out to you right away. And it's not going to be water. It's going to be like barley tea, but it's still pretty good. Is that a standard
1: thing? I, I think I've heard something about how that's like a standard thing in California. Like you have to ask for water if you want water.
2: Is that still true?
0: No. During the drought, it was the either the law or like a guideline. But I remember we were at some hippie vegan bougie place in Santa Cruz and they were just raining waters down on us unasked. And I was like, isn't there a drought? Not to the guy, though. I didn't want to get the stink eye from some hippie waiter.
1: Not that California is in a mega drought
2: right now. I feel like that stopped a couple of years ago, despite the fact that we never stopped really
0: being in a drought. Well, I, you drank the Colorado River dry, so I guess here we are.
3: It's the American way. <laughs> just live with a crisis for a little while, and then we all just pretend that it ended.
1: And then blame <laughs> everyone else for it. <laughs> <laughs> when it becomes too apparent to ignore.
0: Well, that does sound kind of like America's COVID response. And this is like a good segue to ask: How's the pandemic been for you guys?
2: um Have we introduced ourselves yet? Do people know who we are?
0: No, I think that's actually something that we should do here. Sorry, guys. We've like totally taken it for granted that you should just know who Craig and Ruby that's are. Okay. So why don't you guys introduce yourselves?
3: Uh, I'm Craig.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thanks, Craig. <laughs> So for everyone who wants more information than that, Craig and I met at the Symbiosis Conference in Detroit, where our mutual friend now, Shannon, had told him that he should go. So they both went from San Francisco and we met and Craig liked comic books and I like comic books. And so we stayed in touch. And then when we went to visit Los Angeles two years ago before the pandemic started, maybe like a year and a half, we stayed with Craig and Ruby.
3: Wasn't the actual circumstance of our meeting, like we were both on Facebook and you were writing something about symbiosis and I was like, oh, you're at symbiosis? And you were like, yeah. and I was like, oh, I'm at symbiosis. <laughs> I'm like, where are you?
1: I didn't realize that you knew Shannon. Yeah,
3: Shannon is basically the person who introduced me to in anarchism. She was, like, the first person I met who just, like, seemed to recognize that, not just that, like, climate change is happening, but that, I don't know, just, like, seemed to take the ramifications of it seriously. And it threw me for a loop. And then I just, like, went home and had a panic attack and read desert (laughs) to calm down.
1: You met this person and you went
0: home and just, like, shook. And you were just like, I feel so seen. (laughs) That escalated quickly. Uh, What about you, Ruby? What's your deal? Okay,
2: I'm Ruby. Um, I'm Craig's girlfriend. We met in San Francisco when Craig was working for DSA and I was doing stuff with Sunrise. And I was in San Francisco for like a Sunrise action.
3: We were both going to different climate actions on the same day. Now
0: that's
2: a neat (laughs) kid.
3: And we met up the night before at the DSA SF office.
2: And made anti-PG&E buttons together.
3: And anti-Nazi buttons. Cute!
0: Could you guys... Explain what PG&E is for listeners outside of California. Yes,
2: sorry. PG&E is um, the private utility company that manages most of like Northern California's electrical supply.
3: And is basically responsible for burning down a small town in Northern California called Paradise, as well as like the loss of at least 100 lives.
1: I remember read, or actually I was listening to a great interview about the report that came out about PG&E recently on the Current Affairs podcast. It was really quite something. It was, it was quite scathing for a bureaucratic report in terms of their culpability.
0: Yeah, I think I saw that too. Uh, just to keep things moving, maybe for our listeners, most of them probably know what the DSA is, but Craig, do you want to like give a little canned summary of what it is?
3: Oh, uh, man uh i could do
0: it if you're too burned out i think
3: <laughs> yeah is mine gonna be too cynical and yeah like you do bitter? it like do oh it as if it's yeah, go yeah.
0: gonna be less cynical <laughs> <laughs> if
2: anything he's just gonna be more cynical which is why i want to hear it
0: well i'm gonna try and be fair and just say that the democratic socialists of america was founded i think in the 1960s to push the democratic party into becoming a social democratic party And it stayed a relatively small and obscure political formation that worked to help elect Democrats and push them left for decades until Bernie Sanders burst onto the political scene. And even though he has no connection with the Democratic Socialists of America, he was always talking about Democratic Socialism. And that mere semantic coincidence caused tens of thousands of people to join DSA chapters all over America. And all these people joining this organization made all these other leftists also join this organization. And so suddenly DSA is one of the biggest left-wing organizations in the country. And it's full of not only people that love Bernie Sanders, but also various kinds of Marxists and uh, even anarchists, somewhat incredibly. When I first heard that there were anarchists in DSA, I was a little bit mean about it, but I've come to see that they were doing good and important work and that they were like there to meet baby socialists and talk to them about anarchism. And I actually think that kind of describes you, Craig, that like you met Shannon and that helped you become an anarchist.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm like 32 right now. I was thrilled to vote for Barack Obama in 2008 and then incredibly depressed in 2012 for all of the broken promises. And then spent most of my 20s just like depressed and completely unaware that a US left even existed.
0: Fair. A happier time.
3: (laughs) I mean, yeah, Bernie like theoretically brought me out of that funk, but it was only really 2018 with AOC's run that I became aware of DSA. And I really, I joined DSA like not because of Bernie or AOC at the end of the day, but really just because they were the only organization I saw that was actually doing shit locally, like the free brake light clinics.
1: Great initiative.
3: Yeah, it's really cool. It's really not that hard to fix a broken brake light, but broken brake lights are just like a big excuse for people of color to get pulled over by cops and then that shit escalates, as we all know. So a lot of DSA chapters have this project of just holding these free brake light clinics and uh, fixing anyone's brake light that pulls up. And I saw that they were doing that kind of stuff on Twitter. And I finally just went to an intro to DSA meeting and kind of snowballed from there.
0: Well, and thank God it did or we never would have met. Uh, Ruby, could you introduce the Sunrise Movement, which I'd never heard of before we met?
2: Yeah, the Sunrise Movement is, well, it started out as like a movement of young people who were specifically like branded as like under 35, who did a lot of protests about uh, making climate really key issue for politicians in like the 2018 and 2020 elections. And they're kind of most famous for trying to make the Green New Deal part of the national conversation, which is the Green New Deal is basically just like a New Deal-like policy that would be focused around transitioning people who are either unemployed or who currently work into fossil fuels towards getting trained and moved into like well-paying, climate-friendly jobs. So yeah, that was kind of what we were doing. Uh, They did like, really famously, they kind of like did a big protest at Nancy Pelosi's office in like 2018. Yeah, like
3: immediately after the midterm, they had a sit-in in in Pelosi's office that I think AOC was also Mm -hmm. like a prime feature of.
0: I remember Nancy Pelosi's response to that was like totally ghoulish, but I forget what she said now.
2: She was like, "Uh, yeah, these like kids want the green dream or whatever.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs>
2: Maybe that was later. <laughs> yeah, they're kind of their deal was kind of like pushing Democrats to do anything about climate um, and specifically do something that was like gonna actually work in the sense that it was gonna give people jobs and like actually do more than like cap and trade and other bullshit.
0: Do you feel like that panned out? now that there's a Democratic president in
2: Congress? Um, no. So i just going to put a lot of their energy behind Bernie, who had, like, the best climate plan of all the Democratic candidates. <sighs> I don't know. I feel like when Biden won, it was also the pandemic. So, like, a lot of, like, the protest tactics they were used to using, um, kind of, like, mass sit-ins weren't appropriate anymore. And I also think at the same time, they became a little bit non profity mm. For example, they had, like, a no-sleep campaign. I don't know if that was what it was called, but they would, like, protest outside of politicians' houses at like really early hours of the morning trying to get them to take climate action and their big donors were sort of like we don't like that and oh. so they've backed off a little bit but I mean I don't know I think they were really key in getting the Green New Deal and climate to be part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Something that I think about in my time at Sunrise is like I was able to help put on a lot of trainings and one of the key concepts we were training people in is like the government isn't your friend. Politicians have to be pushed to do anything that's going to help you. Uh, fossil Fuel companies knew about have known about climate change since this like the 60s and the 70s. And you know trying to teach people about environmental racism and like indigenous solidarity and I don't know, I feel proud about like all the young people that we've like empowered and trained and kind of like helped shift their mindset to like there's something that we can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's not getting a glass straw and riding your bike.
3: Yeah, I mean, to its credit, like Sunrise, at least in LA, it seemed like Sunrise a little bit petered out towards the start of the pandemic. But that was partly because all of the young activists involved shifted their time and energy towards the George Floyd uprisings. Yeah. All of a sudden, like all of our Sunrise friends were organizing to go to Black Lives Matter protests and stuff like that.
2: Yeah. And to join like mutual aid coalitions and that kind of stuff, which is apparently something National was not super in favor of, which is uh, telling.
1: That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like this loops back around to the conversation that we are starting to have, just asking about what it's been like to live in LA during the pandemic. And I'm wondering if we can loop back around to that, talking about it in an organizing context. And I do just feel like LA it's the second largest city in America. It was a COVID hotspot. What was it like for
2: you guys? Well, on a personal level, it was a little weird. I'm from LA. I've lived in LA since twenty sixteen when I graduated college. And also like the entire time I was growing up. And when we met, Craig was in San Francisco. So we dated long distance for about a year, a year and a half. And then Craig was like, San Francisco's too expensive. I'm going to move to LA.
3: <laughs> also, I was in love with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I still yeah. very much am. Okay. Sure, sure, sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it was a cost saving maneuver, really.
2: <laughs> well, it was also that. Anyway, and then Craig moved to LA and we still, I was kind of splitting time between uh, my dad's house and Craig's place. And then the pandemic started and so pretty much like as soon as the pandemic started, we moved in together full time from being long distance. And that was, you know, definitely our apartment's like 600 square feet. Yeah. So that's been weird.
3: It's tight quarters and like our relationship, like what we need from each other is very different. Like I like a lot of alone time. Ruby likes a lot of together time. And uh, I don't know, we were fighting so much at the beginning.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's an experience a lot of couples had.
1: This is reminding me of me and Hugh's dynamic where I often like to have a lot of alone time and Hugh likes to have a lot of social time and finding something that works for everyone is a challenge under normal circumstances and I can only imagine it just being such a weird experience being in such a high density place but not really feeling like you can go out a lot. I don't know if you guys still did go out or, like, go to meetings or see people.
2: Yeah, I mean, we kind of, for the first few months of the pandemic, we didn't see anybody, really, because, like, nothing was in person. My dad's in his 60s, so, like, I didn't really want to go over to my family's house. Mm. I went uh, back to community college at the start of the pandemic. and had, like, just started doing it in person, Um, so I was, like, out of the house, you know, for, like, 10 plus hours a week and then suddenly everything was online and like i didn't have a desk at craig's place mm. and like all this kind of stuff happened so it yeah. went from like having like a, a kind of like balance of alone time and together time to like suddenly being like forced to being together all the time because like you know for a while at the beginning of the pandemic they closed a bunch of the trails and a bunch of the parks in la Pure brutality. Yeah, so like we Mm -hmm. couldn't, there weren't any places for us to go
0: to begin with.
1: But I want to go up to the fucking Hollywood sign and smoke 300 cigarettes and take some selfies.
0: Well, I think you guys live close to the Griffith Observatory, right? Like, relatively speaking?
2: Yeah, we do. That was only closed for a couple weeks, and then they and they opened it up again. One very LA-specific thing we did, I didn't have a car for about a year. And then Craig moved here, and we neither of us had a car. Um, and, like, the day before the pandemic started, we were like, we have to get a car. Because, like, we just, I don't know, we just didn't know what was going to happen. Like, we didn't know, like, if all the grocery stores were going to close, and we were going to have to, like, drive to one really far away. So we just kind of bit the bullet and, like, did it.
0: Well, and I remember we talked to you guys at the height of the pandemic there, and your case numbers were bananas. It was like 10 times or even 100 times what it was here.
2: Yeah, was it like a a third of people in Los Angeles have had COVID?
3: Yeah, something like that. I don't know. Yeah, LA, it has never really felt like LA took it seriously. We were constantly opening back up and then closing back down. Mm -hmm. Like, Oops.
2: Yeah, like I was in EMT school, which is like for people in Canada, um, EMTs are like America's cheap version of paramedics where you only go to school for like six months.
0: I think we have EMTs here. I've
2: heard that like here, like EMT is just like a really like low certification where like you can obviously perform CPR because anyone can do CPR, but like you can't give IVs, like you can't give any drugs that aren't prescribed to people. Most EMTs work for private companies. So most of what they do is like transport people back and forth from hospitals. Anyway, I was in EMT school and we had to do a bunch of hospital hours. And in November, I was supposed to do my rotation in the hospital after Thanksgiving. And I was like, absolutely not. The COVID numbers are too high. And I, I didn't go. But then it just got worse from there. And I was like, Ugh, I wish I'd just done it in November when the COVID numbers were relatively low. Oh,
0: my God.
3: Mm. The other thing about being in the U.S. is that we really felt like we were on our own. And always do to an extent, right? Right. The CDC is just constantly telling you conflicting things at the start of the pandemic. They're like, uh, just, uh, don't use masks. Uh, it's actually, you don't need masks at all. And then they, you know, later on it was like, oh, actually we just said that. So you wouldn't use all of the masks. Like, okay.
2: (laughs) Now you have to use masks and they're required. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So you're constantly just determining what threat level you're comfortable with, what you think is realistic. It just never feels like, oh, we can trust our public health agencies.
0: California really embodies that evaluate your own threat level thing because I've never been in a place where so many things were labeled as causing cancer. But they're still just there. Every packaged food I buy, every bottle of beer, no matter what it is. Prop sixty
3: five.
2: Yeah, yeah. There was this proposition that passed that was called Prop sixty five. That was just like, if there's a cancer causing agent, you need to label it. <laughs> Everything is labeled. Like every time you go into, uh,
3: like a parking garage.
2: It's like, hey, Prop sixty five has to tell you that if you spend a lot of time breathing in car fumes, even though the entire city is basically just like <laughs> the inside of a parking garage, hot box. Yeah. Oh boy. You know know, this could cause cancer. Every time you like go to the, the Asian supermarket and buy seaweed, they're like, hey, there could be BPA in this in this seaweed, which causes cancer, just so you know, which isn't good for hypochondriacs like me.
0: Did the smog get any better? And the pandemic?
2: It did at the beginning, oh. because there was a lot less shipping from China, which is one of the like main drivers of the smog in LA.
0: Wow, I don't think I realized that.
2: Yeah, like mostly because LA is such a big port, a lot of stuff like pretty much Everything that like gets shipped on an actual ship in from China gets put on a truck in the port of LA and drives up the five or up the 101 or you know, whatever. And that smog gets put right into our lungs.
0: You're asthmatic, right? Unclear.
2: I have like growing up in LA syndrome. So like I had asthma attacks when I was a kid. And now I just get a little tight chested sometimes. Mm. At
0: least you have a relatively progressive city government.
2: Uh...
3: <laughs> we do?
2: Wait, we do we? This is news to me.
0: Have I just made a bad assumption here?
2: Yeah, if, I mean, if you're a liberal, you might feel like our city government is progressive. Like, some of our city council people are gay.
1: Yeah, I've heard uh, the mayor, Eric What's-His-Name, say some things that sounded party. Sounded nice. Like, he, I heard him talking about the wealth disparity in good shaded areas in L.A. Yeah. And good urban design. And how poor neighborhoods don't have as much shade, and so they get hotter.
2: Yeah. Well, poor neighborhoods also don't have enough shade because when the city was planned... They either didn't add or like took out all the trees from poor neighborhoods so that the cops wouldn't have anything blocking their line of vision.
0: Jesus. Well, so what's the real deal with Eric Garcetti and the LA city government?
3: I mean, just the impression that I got since moving there was just that he's just perpetually absent because he's constantly traveling the globe for optimal photo shoots for his future presidential run.
2: Ugh. Yeah, Eric Garcetti really wants to be president. And that's why one of his main goals as LA mayor has been to bring the Olympics to LA. Oh boy. The Olympics are a, a pretty big driver of both gentrification and police presence. Mm-hmm. So like LA has a bunch of proposals under underway right now. Basically, they, they gave a bunch of tax subsidies to build hotels, which are always empty and are just there to house people for the Olympics. Um, and then also they want to expand the police force by some significant amount permanently Mm -hmm. to to deal with homeless people. Mm -hmm. The reality of
3: LA is that like their city council is slightly larger than San Francisco's in terms of how many like representatives serve. And Mm -hmm. it's for a city that's got 10 times the population. Mm Yeah. So I just think anytime you have that disparity, like one LA city councilor represents as many people as some like state senators mm-hmm. so anytime you have that sort of disproportionate situation it's just like money travels so much further than people power
2: yeah i mean people like i remember in 2016 there was like always this joke that like oh california is just gonna you know california is geologically gonna break off the state at some point you know california should just secede and make their own utopian liberal paradise but california has always been like you know like they say that like Canada's like three oil companies <laughs> in the trench coat like California really is like one of the most fossil fuel friendly
3: states in it's the also country. just a state of property owners yeah right. it's a state that's like definitely partly run by the real estate lobby
2: yeah the real estate film industry and fossil mm. fuel interests so like California's government you know people will get really excited about our governor tweeting about climate like climate change is real mm-hmm. which is you know a the bare minimum but we also have a lot of oil drilling here a lot of fracking
0: What. You know what won't destroy your lungs and gentrify you out of your neighborhood? What? <laughs> Is living on a commune in rural Canada.
1: Ah, uh, Hugh, I thought we'd talked about this. Okay. What do you what do you mean?
0: I was I was subtle.
1: I was going to ask if California hypothetically were to secede if Craig and Ruby would still want to be living there or what they envision their future living situation to be like.
2: I uh, need to get out of L.A. Uh, My lungs have taken 27 years of L.A. smog, and I think that's enough for a lifetime. So as soon as I'm done with nursing school, I'm planning on getting out. Mm -hmm. I know Craig doesn't want to stay there forever either.
0: It's funny that you're thinking about maybe going to nursing school in Hamilton because it's a steel town and I think it's air pollution is also pretty bad, although probably not L.A. bad.
3: I mean, I feel like in that specific scenario, if California succeeded, like we would probably get a universal healthcare system pretty quickly because they'd want to show how awesome they are compared to the US. But like outside of that, don't get me wrong, super likely scenario. Yeah, I'm ready to live somewhere that doesn't cost half of my body. And I'm like, like arm and a leg. No, that's not even how expensive it is.
1: I definitely think that the comparison to Canada is so good for the state of California, right? Because it's like, I remember one of my first impressions of California was that I was listening to the radio as a kid in Illinois, and something came on about California. And my mom remembers me saying, California, that's the state with all the fruits and nuts. It was like a thing that I'd heard some conservative radio DJ say. The
2: gays and the hippies.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's like all of California is like hate street San Francisco or something like that. When in fact, you know, the thing that keeps the capitalist machine going whether or not it's a liberal face is resource extraction
2: so that's just like a really interesting thing to remember and also california will never secede because they need water from the rest of the states oh yeah
0: yeah i doubt that the existing water treaty with the colorado would survive succession so it's
3: also just a like electorally it's a very conservative state we have you know, pretty much one party rule But that just means that we're always fighting with Instead of between Democrats and Republicans It's a uh, mm. contest between Progressives and moderates But it's actually the same exact thing
1: Well, so what kind of living situation do you imagine? Like, would you want to stay in a city? Do you have an interest in living rurally? If so, is it more like Farmland or more forest and mountains? Lay it out for us
2: um, I
0: wouldn't... Is that the food?
2: Oh, That wasn't that long
0: no, it wasn't bad.
2: Normally, it's actually must faster. It must be a busy night tonight.
0: I guess it is, yeah.
2: I'm
1: going to pour myself two glasses of soju. I hope nobody minds.
0: Could you pour us all around a soju there, Nicole? Oh, absolutely.
2: So, we, you guys should we should start with the tuna hand rolls. But in terms of quality, I would say my favorite thing is um, the fresh tofu with topping. What? You have to say fresh tofu with topping or else they're going to give you something else. But it's basically just like a bunch of different vegetables like julienne. And, like, cooked in, like, a, some sort of, like, soy sauce, spicy Ooh, sesame oil mixture and plonked on top of some delicious fresh tofu.
0: Is that what the topping is? The vegetables? Yes, yeah,
2: the vegetables are the topping.
0: Yeah. Oh, I would not have guessed that. And then that. the
2: dumbbell. Oh, no, and then the kimchi pancake, then the dumbbells. Then whatever meat bullshit you got.
3: That's like. your ranking. Wow.
0: Hmm. What about you, Craig?
3: Come on, $3 pork belly skewers. <laughs> it's a goddamn steal.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
3: I only don't order like a full dinner of these out of respect for Ruby.
0: <laughs> well, and your own heart health, presumably. Yeah, not not mm. my
2: concern for animals. <laughs> my concern for Craig's uh, eventual heart attack at 45. Craig is an animal.
3: That's true. And uh, a machine.
0: <laughs> a pork belly eating machine, mm-hmm. to be sure. But yeah, uh, what were we saying now that I got a cup of soju in front of me? Would you come live on a commune with us? I'm going to ruin Nicole's subtlety and just ask you flat out.
2: Um, perhaps. It depends on the type of commune.
0: Well, what kind of commune would you want to live in?
2: Um, I don't want to live super rurally, in part because I'm a hypochondriac and I don't want to like live too far away from like a hospital right now we live about two minute walk away from like three different hospitals which is great and also really bad for me but i don't know something like semi rural is fine i don't want to share a house with a bunch of people i want to i want to have my own house i'd love some gardens
0: what about you craig
3: yeah i feel like i grew up with a very like urbanist mindset like only big cities were real places to me but like i don't it's really wild living in la mm-hmm. where there's like a population of 10 million And they all have cars, so anywhere cool that you want to go is also accessible to, like, the other 9.99 million people. So it just feels like, I don't know, everything's always crowded all the time. I would love to just be somewhere smaller, somewhere more, like, in nature. But you can tell by, like, how I talk about it that I have so little experience living outside of big cities. I'm really open to whatever, honestly. Also, now that I have, like, how do I put this tactfully? Pops the seal on owning a car. I never used to want to own a car. I hate cars.
2: Okay, Um, Craig. Do you mean broken the seal or do you mean popped your car, Cherry? You got to pick one.
3: I don't want to. (laughs) (laughs) We have a car. It's fine. We drive places. It's ridiculous how much being a pedestrian in LA makes you a second-class citizen. It just feels like cars are surprised to see you. You're using your feet? That's ridiculous. (laughs) They just don't get it. So yeah, I don't know. I, I'm down for whatever, honestly. I feel like commune, yes. City, no.
2: <laughs> I would like to be able to get food occasionally. That's pretty good. So Kanata is out for a commune location. <laughs> <laughs> Kanada's definitely out for everybody on this podcast.
1: I
3: don't get it. They have Harvey's. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Craig, there is a Harvey's wherever there is a Canadian airport.
2: <laughs> you will be fine.
3: <laughs> All right, sold.
2: <laughs> One of the reasons I've always kind of wanted to live on a commune is because... I feel like kids who don't have a lot of siblings are assholes. But also, like, it's bad to have a lot of kids or something like that. I don't know. Also, just, like, for my body, I don't want to have a lot of kids. That's fair.
3: (laughs) Definitely the thing that got us talking about communes even before we like really developed our wonderful friendship with y'all first of all just raising kids is not a two-person job right
0: no
1: you know i grew up i was born in champaign urbana illinois it's like a mid-sized college town so i was raised there and in lawrence kansas a similarly sized college town and then i moved to cities for all of my 20s and i think i just got it in my head that like Cities were the place to be, just sort of echoing what Craig was saying. And then uh, when Occupy happened, I remember I was reading, I think it was literally called Occupy Comics by Stephanie McMillan. And for like a good portion of the comic, uh, she refers to cities as work camps. (laughs) And at first it just felt like an observation, but then she just kept using the phrase. And it really hit home for me where I was like, fuck, I am in a work camp. All these people are working Constantly to make rent, and what little money they have left over, they're spending on way more booze than they would normally drink, way more cigarettes than they would otherwise be smoking. They are eating out constantly because they don't have time to make food in their own house.
2: Yeah, cities are like a big company store.
1: Yeah, exactly. All cities are company towns, and it's a fucking sham, and I really want to pull my friends out of it and for us to get the fuck out of there because, yeah, uh, my last job where I actually had a boss, I had to walk 20 minutes on one of the busiest streets in Toronto to get to my job, and I would be lucky if I could get through that 20 minutes without spending money somehow and feeling like a putz
3: yeah it's wild even just um just driving in la and seeing the like the billboards are so distracting because it's all for cool new show a cool new movie like i don't know i like movies and tv shows maybe i'd like this one like i've never found myself distracted by billboards before
2: i also like i have pretty severe adhd so i'll see a billboard and be like oh like that show looks interesting i recognize that guy what, is he, what show is he in? Was he in that show with that other guy? I'll just forget that I'm driving for, like, a full, like, 30 seconds. And then, like, realize that I'm driving and, like, whoa.
3: Cities are... They're just, like, they're not really spaces of possibility, you know? John and I... You mentioned John earlier. When we were at Symbiosis together, just, like, hearing about all the cool shit that, like, Symbiosis PDX was doing, or corporation Jackson... Or, God, what is that other org in Illinois? Oh,
1: um, Carbondale? Carbondale Spring.
3: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly.
1: I'm so happy to meet those guys.
3: We were like, all of this stuff is super inspiring, but like, what could we even bring back with us to San Francisco? Mm. We couldn't do any of this. Mm-hmm. It just, it seems like the, like, the best way we could engage with that kind of project is like con venture funds out of their money and funnel it to these more open spaces.
1: Ooh. Ooh, now you're cooking with gas, Craig.
3: Well, keep it on the D <laughs> Yeah, we were just like, I guess, like, what do we do? Rob banks? And,
0: you know, there's a proud tradition of that, Craig. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, Buenaventura de Rudy, before he lived in Spain, he lived in Latin America for a time. I mean, he was born in Spain, but he went to Latin America to rob banks for a period. And the Bolsheviks actually did some bank robbing of various successes, too. And Nestor Makhno, the Ukrainian anarchist, also robbed banks. It used to just be the thing. But that's also one of the reasons the banks have become much harder to rob, is that they used to be, like, relatively easy to rob.
3: Just ATMs for social movements.
0: I actually think that there is
1: probably some stuff happening, but more in the cryptocurrency realm these days, where Mm. things aren't as regulated like lots of money can go missing from cryptocurrency transfer sites and things like that. I mean,
3: we, we just all have to get on um, our Wall Street bets and, you know, just take it to the short sellers. That's my <laughs> attitude.
0: Did you uh, get yourself mixed up in game stonks, Craig?
3: Yeah, but I got out uh, unscathed just with a month of anxiety. <laughs> Here's a pro tip. By the time stocks are hot and interesting enough for you the person who has never invested in in stocks before, to invest in them, you are the sucker at the very bottom of the MLM scheme. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That shit is about to (laughs) all.
0: Well, I mean, Craig, I guess you started off living in Montreal, and then you lived in St. Louis, and then San Francisco, and then finally Los Angeles. Does St. Louis feel any different to you in terms of the horizons of possibility? Because I know that it's like a much more affordable place to live than those other cities.
3: Maybe... I don't know. Honestly, like I was kind of an elitist when I was living and when I was going to school in St. Louis. I was like, St. Louis has nothing on Montreal or New York, the city I've never lived in, but my dad is from, and so I am entitled to some energy of that. So I just really didn't bother spending much time there.
0: In fairness, Montreal is the greatest city in North America.
3: Yeah, I mean, it has the greatest bagels.
0: It has the greatest bagels. It has the best poutine. I don't care what anybody says. It has the largest anarchist book fair in North America, I'm pretty sure. It used to be very affordable, but now gentrification is slowly starting to make it a little more expensive, but it's still nowhere near as bad as other places in Canada. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think St. Louis definitely has like more open space. But I really like even if it hadn't been over 10 years ago, I I really couldn't speak to it.
0: Nicole, you have a friend that lives there, right?
1: Yeah, I was just thinking about how this reminds me of how you can live in a city while you're going to university there. And you can almost not even experience the city because university life is its own little bubble. I believe that. Yeah, I have a friend who lives in St. Louis. And I think it's one of the gems, you know, um, certainly property prices are, are probably going up more now. But, you know, it's a place where you can work as like a freelancer, like a contract worker part time and, you know, still live in a flat for 600 bucks or something. I, I my friend's friend works as a yoga instructor and keeps her own studio in the flat below her apartment, and she gets the whole thing for like seven hundred and fifty dollars u s nice needless to say uh <laughs> there are some areas of St Louis where property values are low because supposedly there aren't very many opportunities, but I think that that's I think that's changing. I loved St Louis. I went a couple of years in a row to visit my friend Casey, who I met doing veteran rights organizing, and uh she bought a duplex there for pretty cheap, red brick duplex uh, a couple of years back. And none of the door locks worked. She was in a bad neighborhood, but she had four pit bulls uh, who would run from one side of the duplex to the other whenever they heard a noise. And that was a pretty good security system. And then in addition to that, she was like a node for a local mutual aid food distribution group. So once a week or once a month, she would open up the main floor to people in the neighborhood who needed like fresh produce or eggs or dried goods, non-perishables, and she would distribute stuff. Seems pretty cool. I was into it.
2: Speaking of food distribution, Hugh, will you uh, hand me a big chunk of that kimchi pancake? Oh,
0: I will. Yeah. Could you pass me the pineapple skewers? Sure. Is it okay if I kill this one?
2: Yeah, we've all had one, right? Yeah, I got, I got mine.
0: Sick. And then I'm actually going to get one of those pork bellies while Craig is in the bathroom and can't give me a dirty look. Hey, yeah, you better be quick. Yeah, I'll just eat the whole thing. I'll be slippery about it.
1: Oh, I meant to ask Ruby. I think you mentioned some mutual aid stuff in LA. Is there anything interesting that you saw during the pandemic that you want to give a shout
2: out about? I might not be the best person to ask because I, at the beginning of the pandemic, I just sort of like went into big depression mode and just like went fully into school. But you know, someone that's always doing good work is Food Not Bombs. Mm -hmm. You know, they kept kept up their work during the pandemic. They. Two or three times a week, they cook, like, a big meal, put it in, like, little individual containers, whether that's, like, burritos or, like, you know, a salad and a stew, and bring it to Skid Row and, and give it to people who are experiencing homelessness. And during the George Floyd protest, they really, like, amped up their, their work and started bringing burritos to feed protesters and you know just doing cool stuff nothing
1: like a, a protest burrito you know like you're walking you're marching with a bunch of folks and there's just like some scruffy raccoon looking dude on a bike with a bike trailer full of hot burritos he just passes you one and you're just like
2: mm. yeah nothing like a good protest burrito that's that's that bliss uh craig's back from the bathroom sorry that all the pork belly skewers are gone he killed him
3: Hugh killed him that doesn't sound like you
2: yeah you i thought you didn't eat pork
0: no keep kosher meticulously.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Are there any good mutual aid people in LA that you want to shout out? I just talked about Food Not Bombs. Oh. Or just
1: projects.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think friends would be mad at me if I didn't mention the Mutual Aid Committee of DSA LA, which is one of the few actual cool spaces of cool people in that chapter. Hell yeah. But uh, a lot of the projects of that committee were kind of put on hold through the pandemic. But uh, the group that I actually think did a great job is Ground Game. They're called Ground Game LA think they might have chapters in other cities but anyway it's like a vaguely anarchist org um kind of municipalist too like they were simultaneously like having this big mutual aid operation and also running Nithya Raman's ramen's campaign
2: who's just a a very progressive city council person who who won in kind of like the silver lakey area recently
3: yeah she seems cool but um their mutual aid operation was like they basically they have this little office on hollywood And they turned two of the rooms into just this like grocery distribution site for immunocompromised people. Wow. And they consulted with, I don't know, like experts to like, it's a whole disinfection operation, you know, they have like their clean room and their hot room and everyone wears gloves and they would train us on the exact proper way to put the gloves on. So we're not contaminating gloves while we're putting them on and then always hold them out with your arms in front of your body. Um, and be very like careful about what you're touching in the room and then we would like wipe everything that was sealed in bleach and move it from the hot room yeah I never
2: I never did that part of the thing because the bleach smell was so strong that I, I could not be in that room for more than like two minutes
3: yeah it was it was awesome like I volunteered for a few disinfection shifts and then we also had you know a whole team of drivers that would take all these groceries out to to people who needed them and yeah, and they could even just, like, place specific orders. Like, oh, we have this allergy, or I have three kids, so maybe throw in, like, some snacks and candy. And...
2: That's incredible. Yeah. Uh, also, Street Watch is a sort of co-org with DSA.
3: Yeah, they're one of those orgs that, like, started in DSA, but attracts a lot of non-DSA members, and so they kind of have, like, one foot in, one foot out.
2: Anyway, they put up these power-up tables. Um, they'll set up, like, where they're, wherever there's, like, a big unhoused population and basically give people, like, a space to, like, charge their phone and, like, get masks and hand sanitizer and COVID-19 information.
0: I mean, that's really incredible. But also, could somebody top up my barley tea? Oh, I got you. Thanks.
2: Also, uh, Nicole, can I get a dumbbell? Oh, yeah. Am I hogging the dumbbells over here? Sorry.
1: A
0: little bit. A little bit. Disgraceful. Uh, Earlier, I wanted to ask you guys, and it's just not the way the conversation flowed. I guess we talked a little bit about how L.A. is going to, along with the rest of California, literally split off and slide into the ocean as a result of the big one, uh, the big earthquake. But in general, I think that for a lot of people, one of the things that's motivating them to entertain living on a commune rurally is anticipating a kind of level of social collapse. And I was wondering, do you guys feel like you're already experiencing social and environmental collapse in California? Is it acute? Is it just kind of in the background? I think you were kind of saying the American way is to acknowledge a crisis, blame other people, and then pretend it never happened.
2: I feel like for sure we're experiencing like environmental and social collapse in the background in LA. Like what is it like 40% of the U.S is in a drought right now. Jesus. And you know, like during COVID, all of our like cooling centers were closed. So every time we had like a 90 degree day, like three times as many people as normal would die of heat stroke.
3: Yeah, I feel like the way we experience the collapse is just in like horrible things happening and you realize that there's no one coming to save you but yourselves. The first time I kind of woke up to that was during coming full circle here with, the, with PG&E, the campfire. In 2018 which like by comparison san francisco didn't experience horribly we just had two weeks where the city was covered in like really dense smoke and the sky was red and it just felt very doomy but like it was horribly toxic outside and the city government like literally imported a thousand respirator masks meanwhile two anarchists in oakland Brought in a shipment of 50,000 and just like distributed them to organizations all around the bay. And DSASF was one of them. And we handed out like probably five times the number of the masks that the city did. You know, we just like walked around to known unhoused encampments and knocked on RV doors and stuff like
1: that. How can a story be both so inspiring and also so pathetic? You know, it's like. <laughs> the people who have access to like all of this funding and all of these contacts are doing so little and people who have so little are doing so much.
3: Yeah, for real. And oh my God. I went to this um report back at like, I forget what it's called. It's like station 39 or something in San Francisco. It's just like this anarchist house where a bunch of people came back from up north and were like, you know they were going up to help out with relief efforts. And they were just telling us about like sort of the encampments that were springing up in some of these towns that have been devastated, like in Chico. I I think Chico was also more like receiving people who were fleeing from really horrible fire situations and just really cool, but also grim situations, right? Like just in the parking lot of this one Walmart, there was this whole community that sprang up of people of like basically refugees. Mm -hmm. And we were hearing stories about like, The cops would come through and and start some shit just to see who was kind of like the quote unquote leader of the camp and be very confused when they learned that like there was no leader.
0: Oh, my gosh. Okay, but I guess to get back on track on the subject of communes, which I feel like we've drifted away from a little bit talking about catastrophe. I wanted to ask you guys more concretely. What part of the world do you think you'd want to set up a commune in Mm -hmm. if you were the only ones making the decision and everyone else was going to come to you?
2: Um, Somewhere wet. Somewhere where, like in California, I feel like my fear would be that some big company slash whatever large entity takes over after social collapse, however that might happen, will just come and, like, drain all your water out from under you. Mm -hmm. You know, if you live in Canada or, like, Seattle, they're probably not going to be able to steal all your water because more is coming. So somewhere north... I also, you can't see on a podcast, I'm, I'm a blonde redhead. I should not have grown up in California. Mm-hmm. I'm at horrible skin cancer risk. So somewhere somewhere north would be good for me. You should
1: check out Prince Rupert, British Columbia. It's the city in North America
2: that gets the least amount of direct sunlight. Uh, I mean, I also don't want to have to buy a depression UV lamp. So <laughs> somewhere somewhere in between.
3: Yeah, I don't know that I have a clear preference for like where I want to live out climate collapse. I feel like whatever works. I'll put up with I mean I definitely prefer Bay Area temperatures like 65 and sunny is great for me do you have any of those
0: I mean we got a few of those don't we Hugh well not year-round of course I mean there's places in BC where uh, it never really drops below freezing even the middle of the winter I actually was surprised looking at the Newfoundland climate charts on the coast. It doesn't usually drop below freezing, but it also usually doesn't rise below about 50 Fahrenheit or so or like 10 degrees Celsius. I don't know how exactly I'm getting the Fahrenheit number there, but uh, it's just perennially chilly there, which doesn't sound very attractive to me. But the problem with BC, of course, is that land there is very expensive and we would need to get a bunch of people together ahead of time if we wanted to like set up a commune that was going to be able to sustain itself.
3: Yeah, it's just not my expertise and my attitude is I'll go where the people are.
0: You know, Hugh and
1: I talk a lot about how living communally for us doesn't necessarily mean that we will become completely stationary. Like, the idea of there being people still living at your home while you go and spend two months somewhere else is really appealing to me as somebody who who likes to keep plants and cats and things like that. So, you know, if we're talking about relatively good weather for eight to 10 months out of the year, there's still the opportunity to make that work.
0: Yeah, I was talking with a friend recently, he was saying he was really drawn to Winnipeg because he's from there. And that is definitely not a year round spot to live as far as I'm concerned, it's like minus 40, which I think is like minus 26 Fahrenheit during the winter, which is totally brutal and not even a little bit appealing to me. But in the summer, I guess it's more manageable and ditto the spring and fall and land is really cheap there in like rural Manitoba. But I think I still, in terms of what you guys are articulating, I think that Nova Scotia is a pretty good sell. And that's our current plan.
2: Why are you interested in Nova Scotia, Hugh? You've never mentioned that to me before.
0: For our listeners at home, I feel like I need to clarify these things. So yeah, I mean, Nova Scotia really appeals to us because it's by the sea, it's very wet, it's climactically stable, it doesn't get too hot, it doesn't get too cold. It's not so rainy in the summer. It's rainy in the winter, but you don't have to shovel the rain, unlike snow. So that's very appealing to me. But I don't know, we'll try and get you guys out there sometime and then you can form your own opinion
3: about it. Yeah, my plan is to let you make that move and then we come visit you again and check it out.
1: You guys have been staying with us for a little bit now. Do you feel like you kind of have a sense of like, <laughs> if we did have a co-living space, what would work for you and what wouldn't work for you?
2: Um, multiple houses are definitely ideal for multifamily living situations.
1: Oh yes, I also agree with this. You don't like being woken up by the screams of our child at four o'clock in the morning, Ruby?
2: You know, children have a way of screaming like they're about to die when really they just are annoyed and want to wake up. It's very true. I don't want to be woken up by anyone but my own baby. Oh, even that's not that great. No, I'm sure. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I feel like multiple houses around like a central courtyard slash garden sounds really appealing to me.
3: Yeah, I also don't know if, like, staying with y'all for a little over a month is really the same thing as both of us living in a shared space that we both have similar claim and emotional, like, investments in, you know, like, we're here as guests and, like, we're trying to help out and stuff, but... It's not the same as, like, mutually agreeing on, like...
1: That's such a good point. I'm so glad that you brought that
3: up.
0: Yeah, that question of, like, self-government, I think, is a really important one, and it's one of the reasons that we talk more about living on the same land in adjacent buildings rather than all living in one building, because... There's a lot of moving pieces to self-government, and it's really easy for things to break down and for conflicts to fester and for people to not do things because they can't get agreement or to back channel and then cause conflict when they do something without securing agreement. And that kind of thing just builds up this background acrimony. I think it's really ideal to kind of be building up the level of trust and the culture of cooperation gradually and letting the shared responsibilities grow a little bit slower than the trust that exists between participants. You've been really great guests, but I agree it's fundamentally very different. You've had to humor our outrageous wins and not get to play as many board games as you would have liked, I know. And I think that you might be able to stack a vote and compel me by the force of the commune to participate in a board game night with a bit of electoral chicanery if we lived on a commune.
2: That would be very appealing to Craig. (laughs) Craig is a board game boy.
3: I'm like a little bit angry at myself for bringing a board game without fully understanding the situation I was walking into. But also I literally brought the like perfect board game for you, Hugh. There is a faction in Root. While everyone else is having their territory control games, you get to be a fun little raccoon Aww. RPG character going on their own quests, getting the little items, <laughs> just moving around in the forest. You don't even share space with us. You just have your own forest to walk around in.
0: That is incredibly thoughtful, and it makes it a very bitter pill that I hate <laughs> <laughs> I say this as a very particular
2: person. He was one of the most particular people I've ever met. Very true. It's very difficult to convince Hugh that they will like something that they haven't tried yeah. before. Or they've tried a version of it in life.
1: (laughs) Well,
3: I resonate with that. So I can't hate you too much.
1: The fact that like people are particular and the idea of living together, I think for most people in this day and age, in the world that we live in, feels so daunting that it's almost impossible. You know, like this idea that you can find agreement with your partner, let alone a community of people feels like just too much for people, uh, especially if you want to put like a job and kids on top of that. Like
3: as humans, we're just like so bad at it.
1: I think as humans, biologically, you know, like evolutionally, we're actually probably pretty good at it. And we just have been a little out of whack for the last several hundred years.
3: Yeah, yeah. No, that's what I mean. We don't have practice at it, and we're trained to not exist that way at all.
1: And it does require practice. It's a muscle you got to exercise.
0: I actually feel like I'm nearing a breaking point about being particular, where I'm so bored of everything I enjoy after a year in the pandemic that I'm reaching this plateau of decadence, where I think I might need to like just say yes to things that I've traditionally not liked as a way to entertain myself because I can no longer take the same kind of venal pleasure and eating chili three times a month. Over the course of the pandemic, Nicole has worked at this bread rescue place, or Nicole rescues food in general and distributes it, and then we keep some of it. And so we have had hundreds, if not thousands, of chocolate croissants pass through our home, and we have definitely kept more than 100 of them in the past year. It's like probably, I don't know, in the neighborhood of like two or 300. And there's been times where I was eating two chocolate croissants a day, or like 10 chocolate croissants a week, just because we were running out of space in the freezer. And I've reached this point where I like don't even like chocolate croissants anymore. They're this low grade form of suffering, and like putting them into my mouth and eating them and worrying about my teeth and my blood sugar and just being like, I might as well be eating ash. (laughs) That's like particularly acute, but I'm starting to feel that way about a lot of stuff. And I guess what I'm saying is it's not impossible that I will play this board game with you before you leave.
2: We'll hold you to that possibility. That's kind of the benefit of having a larger commune too that's not just three or four families. Living with a group of people kind of inherently forces you out of your comfort zone, at least sometimes. Yeah. In a way that living with just your partner or even your partner and a few other people doesn't.
3: I also want to say like I'm not opposed from the get-go to like living in shared homes. Obviously, the ideal situation is like everyone has their own separate living space and you kind of just leave your doors open when you're open to having guests over or whatever. But at least for me personally, I'm a pretty patient person. I feel like I can hang in there while we kind of figure out our interpersonal dynamics, you know? Yeah, you
2: handled (laughs) having me move in at the beginning of the pandemic super well.
3: I mean, we hung in there, right? Like, (laughs) fucking stuck it out. Yeah, we're still dating. (laughs)
2: Yeah, no, and I definitely,
1: I see my, I feel like this isn't quite the right word, but I I see my chemistry shift sometimes depending on the people that I'm around or if something big has changed in my life, like moving in with a partner or like having long-term house guests or multiple family members staying over. I I definitely notice changes in my personality and sometimes I just kind of have to ride it out and and see where it's going
3: yeah ride it out i'm like kind of excited to or i would be kind of excited to you know practice those things that like we don't get practiced at anymore like conflict resolution between people who aren't necessarily forced to be in relationship with each other
0: well it's actually a good segue because i wanted to ask you both what skills you think you bring to communal living but before you answer i was going to say Perhaps naively, I believe about myself that I'm a relatively capable mediator, which is a thing that isn't such a necessary skill under capitalism because most of people's social interactions are mediated by capital. Like someone's your boss or they're a coworker. We're able to discipline ourselves because you don't want to get in trouble with your boss. You don't want your coworker to hate you. And when it comes to friends, if you're not getting along, you can avoid them for a while. And if you don't like your friends and you live in a city, there's a million other friends that you can go out and make. And so I don't think people see mediation as an especially necessary skill Until they're in couples therapy, where that's the kind of mediation that I think people like go to out of necessity, because a romantic relationship is one of the few places under late capitalism where you are so emotionally entangled with someone that you would be compelled to mediate it rather than just disassociate yourself from them, which I think has become totally the norm to like treat each other as disposable. Yeah. So I th- I think of mediation as a really valuable skill in the context of a commune where that opportunity for disassociation isn't there, and where both sides need to be heard. But also, maybe I'm like really too optimistic about myself, and I also think a lot of people who know me from the internet will be laughing at me as they listen to this, because I'm a very inflammatory internet personality, which is not necessarily how I'm in real life.
1: I was surprised by you saying... <laughs> that it's only online. I mean, I found it quite shocking. Remember, we had a bit of a culture shock when we first started dating because I felt like you and your family were savage with each other comparatively to my family, which is not close, but also very diplomatic when we are spending time together. And I felt like you really successfully convinced me that in order to have intimate relationships, you need to be able to talk about the tough stuff. You need to be able to talk about the things that you disagree with in, in somebody's life and like maybe be a little bit interfering and meddling, but it's like they have the right to interfere in your life. And like that's kind of a part of that agreed upon ecosystem. It doesn't need to be that way in communal living, but it really just kind of brought me around to thinking about relations in a way that I hadn't before with my own family
0: culturally my family is very waspy and so I do think that we're also pretty close in terms of how open we are with each other but I think that there's also a tendency to be kind of like dryly sarcastic to the point of biting And mostly that's just like fine and we're all used to it. But once in a while, someone goes too far. And so it's not really something that I would look to reproduce in a communal living situation because I think the closeness comes from being a Catholic family and the sarcasm and dry irony comes from being a wasp family. And I I want to jettison that second part. (laughs) And also, yeet the hell out of the Catholicism, needless to say.
3: I love everything y'all just said. I also think that like one of the greenest flags in our relationship like me and Ruby was just like our ability to work through a conflict and like see things from each other's perspectives at the end of it, and just practice that empathy and all that. You're right. Like it's definitely something that mostly comes up in like romantic relationships, but why should that only be limited to romantic relationships? Like I think that like friendships are such a lost form of art, especially for mask-raised people.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: You mean ma- you mean masculine, not people growing up in the era of COVID with masks on. <laughs>
2: Yeah,
3: oh, I thought that's what 100% what I
2: thought yeah.
3: you meant. I guess both, but yeah, I meant masculine. Yeah, I think skills, Um, I don't know. Are there enough people on the commune to have a sports league of some sort? I hope so. <laughs> you do
0: have incredible coach energy because you have a shaved head and a
3: mustache.
1: <laughs> Just need to get a sweatband on you.
3: I appreciate that. I'll take it. I actually did some amateur coaching for League of Legends players one time, and it was super rewarding and fun. I love coaching. I love sports coaching. I love sports that kind of, like, fun physical activity. So many people just relate to physical activity through, like, exercise in the gym that they force themselves to do. And uh, sports is such a rich part of life in other non-north american cultures like just amateur uh, sports
2: what's your workout situation been like during the pandemic craig i don't (laughs) yeah
1: oh i'm right there with craig like if i don't have opportunity to go and play basketball and just like totally burn hundreds of calories and love every second of it i'm just not exercising at all
0: the last time nicole went to play basketball she played on the court in our neighborhood with a 10 year old and he destroyed her
1: (laughs) got straight whooped Of course, he was better dressed. He was better. He was dressed for the game. I was out there in like slacks and flip flops or something.
3: You were just walking by and you got challenged to a pickup (laughs) game.
1: He was talking some good game. (laughs) Couldn't leave that hanging.
3: That's beautiful.
1: My family's honor was on the
2: line.
0: (laughs) Well, but so Ruby, what about you?
2: I remember uh, reading the IPCC report in 2017 um, and also reading a lot of Octavia Butler who talks a lot about like apocalypse skills and what's your apocalypse skill and being like, fuck, like what is my apocalypse skill? Um, And then I somewhat relatedly, somewhat unrelatedly decided to go to nursing school a couple years ago. Pretty obviously like I would like to bring camp nurse vibes Mm. to a commune. Those are good vibes. I can't do your heart surgery, but like I can probably like treat most minor things and like Help you figure out the urgency of something. Do health interventions that will prevent people from getting hurt and also like prevent health problems from happening. So being able to bring like healthcare skills, which I guess is like pretty obvious given my career trajectory currently. Um, I don't know. I can also garden. I can cook. I'm a good trainer.
0: You're really making me and Craig look like a couple assholes.
3: (laughs) For real. Yeah, I feel like carpentry seems kind of appealing to me, but I've never tried it. But just the idea of like building something that lasts and like seeing people use it seems really cool.
0: When we were up visiting this guy Nicole knew from when we lived in a hardcore loft in Toronto, he'd bought some land on the outskirts of Thunder Bay in northern Ontario, and he was in the process of building a little compound. Like, he was doing it. He'd built a house for his mom and stepdad. He built another house for his best friend. He lived in, like, kind of an Earthship-type house with his wife and child. And something he said was that practically everyone up there Owned their own lumber mill, like just a little one, and that he had actually gotten rid of his because it was so cheap to just use some other guy's. It wasn't like worth it to keep it up, which I thought was hilarious, but also really interesting because I wouldn't have assumed that the barrier was so low to being able to mill your own lumber. And so before even getting to the level of carpentry, there's like you and I could just be sweaty lumberjacks, correct? <laughs> yeah, that
3: sounds cool. I feel like I'm very into the idea of doing meditative, repetitive labor, like chopping wood.
0: Yeah, but not every day. <laughs>
2: Y'all dream about uh getting concrete skills.
3: Maybe we'll take a class. keep talking yeah.
2: about it. Keep talking about it.
1: Some folks are a little more aspirational than others. Let's Sorry. try not.
2: Let's try not to discourage
1: them from being <laughs> productive. <laughs> Sorry,
2: I would love you to learn how to be a carpenter, Craig.
3: Yeah, Ruby gives me shit all the time because the thing I'm actually doing is uh, game development. I don't know how much value that brings as a apocalypse skill.
2: Give you shit about? Uh, you're like, yeah, I would like love h- to learn how to do like carpentry or welding, but you kind of treat it like it's like some like magical. If, if skill. only that were
3: possible. Yeah,
2: like being a wizard or like you know flying. And I'm like, you know, there's people who do that, who teach you how to do that for money. Right.
1: <laughs> I just need to download the skill into my brain and then I'll know it all.
2: Yeah, that's the problem. You watched The Matrix too much as a kid.
3: It's a great film.
0: Solid B. <laughs> We're
3: going to have words after this.
0: But I, we, don't have, we don't have time. We only have another 10 minutes. So we should get the check, first of all. And I'm worried about making our flight so that we don't get back in Ottawa after Felix has done daycare and have to pay the gotcha. surcharge for late stay.
2: Um, yeah, we should just order one more drink so that Ooh. we can also get the check.
0: Okay, I don't mind getting on the flight half in the bag, so let's just uh, get the drink, get the check, and then...
2: I hope everything's tasting great so far. Is there anything else I can get for the table? Oh uh, yeah, could we get the... could we get one more soju cocktail and the check, please? Sure
0: thing. Thanks. I only have one more question for you guys, which is, what would you do with your free time on a commune?
3: I don't know, I feel like hang, yeah, is like drink beers and hang with people. Just vibe? Yeah.
0: We should learn carpentry to build a really big porch, Craig. Oh,
2: Nicole, this is our project together. I really think that a commune should have a sauna. That sounds pretty good. I would chill out in a sauna. Um, I would probably read, Mm. work out, garden, hike.
0: Oh, Ruby, I have a machete we could sharpen and then we could cut trails. Hell yeah. Because there won't just be hiking trails. We'll have to make them.
2: You know, I tried really hard to learn how to use a machete to like cut down the bougainvillea outside of my house as a kid. And like, I was terrible at it. But it might have just been a really dull machete because mm-hmm. my dad didn't trust me with the real one. Well. Yeah, they sell them
0: dull. Because uh, yep. at least in Canada, they're illegal if they're sharp.
2: Yeah. I actually feel like
1: something that I'm learning more about right now, I'm on a project, most people know I'm like an illustrator for my day job, and I'm on a project right now with some Australian scholars and Indigenous activists about cultural burning, and the stories that are coming through on the project really paint a picture of how daily activities can often be really just about taking care of the land. Like land management, you know, like that is how you spend your day. Mm. We're making these jokes about like, oh, haha, like it's not productive to do certain things or it is productive to do other things. But it's like, if you really just want to walk around your land and like take good care of it, that's productive. That's like a good way to spend your time. And I think that sometimes we overlook that kind of stuff, the day-to-day tending, whether it's physical or ecological or emotional, that's an important part of building a sustainable community. And I want to see some of that on this commune, some good ecological land management.
2: Yeah, just productive puttering. Mm -hmm.
0: Here's the soju, guys. Bottoms up. We'll Okay, the cab's outside. I called a cab. Uh, and by called a cab, I actually mean texted an Uber, which I feel <laughs> a little guilty about because they're union busting. But let's go. We got to make it to LAX.
2: Whew, just in time. Are you guys hungry for dinner? Oh, yeah. What are you thinking? Maybe that uh, vegetarian Indian place that has uh, street food snacks.
0: I don't know, but what about Harvey's, Craig? Yeah, what about
3: Harvey's?
1: Splitters, splitters. We had an idea, and you were just going to start a separate bill at a different restaurant? Doesn't seem right. (laughs) Ruby, we can go in on the Indian street food. They can do their burger thing.
3: Yeah, everyone can be happy.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Capitalism is the land of consumer choice, and everything's great apart from all the things we just talked about. But thanks so much for taking us to that restaurant. What was it called again, Ruby?
2: Dan Sung Sa on 6th Street in Koreatown.
0: Let's definitely go back there uh, when we come visit you on the book tour. And I just want to say thanks for coming to stay with us again, because it's been a very lonely year. And just having two other people in the house has helped me feel more human again.
2: Thanks for having us. It's been great also.
3: Yeah, it's been a delight.